Good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Psalm 95, as you're going there, um, I would remind you, not that you need to be reminded, but about a month, people everywhere are going to be really excited about worship. The worship leaders will be cranking up the music, inviting worshipers to throw their whole selves into the excitement of the worship event. And how do they get everyone engaged in worship? By inviting them to lose themselves in enjoyment of the game. I am a big football worshiper. It's kind of embarrassing. I know some of you hate football because you see that and you're like, what in the world? But all of us worship something. And the question is, do you get excited about the worship of the Lord in a like fashion as you do to football? Or a big name concert? Or a shopping trip? Or from the blank? Um, even this morning, there's something lots of days ago about our worship. Not that I'm trying to shame you. Sometimes we struggle to worship the Lord. All of us do. If you struggle in this, God invites you into enjoyment and worship through Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he has made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put, put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are God who constantly is calling us back into worship. You know how forgetful we are of you, and yet you pursue us anyway. And I pray that you would really, through your Spirit's work, cause your word to live in our hearts and lives so that it might produce fruits. So we might learn to enjoy you and worship you, um, not just on Sunday mornings, but in all of life. But God, will you help us to worship you through your word today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So several years ago, there was a, a modern-day philosopher, as it were, not a Christian, named David Foster Wallace. And he was giving a reflection on life, as he was wont to do. And he said this. Remember, this is not a Christian speaking. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and most important person in all of existence. You ever feel that way? We rarely talk of this sort of nat natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. You see, there's no experience 
you've had where you're not the absolute center of the experience. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism, he continues. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship, he's being pretty generic here, is that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you're tapped in the real meaning of life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, etc. The skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in a way, in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be the lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. But the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That's real freedom. What was David Foster Wallace getting at? That all of us are worshipers. And what's the center of our worship? We are. The center of all our experience tells us that we're the main person in the universe. And therefore, we leverage life to worship things that we love. And the things that we love shape us, as he talked about. And yet, that's why what we're talking about this morning is so critical, because God has made you for himself. So as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. But the other part of it is that we're being formed to be a certain sort of people and to have certain sort of drives that, that cause us to have either fear or joy. And a lot of times the things that really shape us fundamentally, even as people of the faith, even as Christians, is not the gospel, is not God's word, is not God himself, but it's all the other things in life that empty, empty our lives and make us a shell of a person. And yet if this is you, there's good news for you. God is giving us this Psalm 95 to a call to worship, to re-invite you into his presence, into his worship. Now we'll look at three things today. We'll look at the invitation to worship, and then we'll see the confrontation regarding worship, and then the transformation of worship. Begin with, let's look at the invitation to worship. This is really the fundamental part of the psalm. As a matter of fact, most of you are familiar only with the first seven verses of this text. Um, in preparing for worship, we've uh, had verses one through seven lots. We've really had the rest of the verses in there. But it has two invitations. The first is found in verses one and two. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. God's calling us to come and sing before him. As I was reading this psalm and preparing to preach it, I was really convicted because I'm like, man, I wish that this, the psalmist spirit of wanting to come and just erupt in praise and thanksgiving before God was something that characterized me on a day-to-day basis. I'm not saying it never shows up, but does it capture me like this? And the truth is, is far too often it doesn't. And that's why we need to hear it, because God's inviting us to come and enjoy Him. He's calling us to come and praise Him with joy and thanksgiving and praise. As Augustine said about this psalm, what ought to a man praise more than that which pleases him deeply? God calls us to a great banquet of joy here, not only in the world, but in the Lord. In this psalm, God's not coming to invite us into something boring. He's calling to invite us into something that's enthralling. It's the most enthralling thing there is, himself. Years ago, there's a... Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is before our church was really uh, healthy. Not that it's like uh, arrived, but there's a, there a child there that uh, heard about worship and that we'd be worshiping God forever. And, and the child said... Man, if heaven's like our worship, I don't know if I'm going to go there. Far too often that's the case, but the, the worship that God's calling us into here is not like that. It's the kind of thing you long to be invited into. It's the kind of thing that, it's like the concerts that you miss out on. You're like, why did nobody invite me? Augustine also pulls out a, a really interesting illustration. He says, all of us love to sing. Half my sermons are filled with me singing very poorly the songs I love because when I was in my teens, I did nothing but listen to music. I asked Melissa what was her favorite. Uh, She used to sing Chicago songs, Peter Peter Cetera. You're my inspiration. Some of these songs are absolutely stupid if you listen to the words. That a God's going (laughs) to... Melissa's giving commentary. That a guy's going to be your inspiration, really? <clears throat> Maybe for a moment. Yet there's something right and joy-filled about wanting to belt out a song in the car at the top of your lungs. I know all of you have done it before. I've seen you. So maybe not all of you. But how much more is it right and joy-inducing to sing songs of praise to our Lord? He's the only one, literally the only one, that's worthy of such praise. And so why should we praise him, the psalmist asked. The first reason he gives is creation. We see that in verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the greatness of God. He uses shorthand for it because the whole scriptures are full of this reality. If you want an example, you could look at Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 11 through 31, it just goes on and on. I, I would like to read it, but for time's sake, I'm not. But the very thing that we get excited about, the people we get excited about, are like grasshoppers, you said, compared to the greatness of God. They're like nothing before him. He's a great God, great king above all gods. What's that talking about? Other gods? 
There are a lot of things that we worship. There are a lot of people that have God-like power. That's what he's talking about. And yet they're nothing as, as before God the King. He raises them up only to put them down. There are tons of examples in the scriptures about how God raised up a king and his army only to thrust them down. You think of Pharaoh and the, the, uh, the Babylonian Syrian armies. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. He runs the whole world and he's doing a great job of it. The whole world is his and runs on the strength of his power. Verse 5, the sea is his for he made it. Just think, God made the entire world. It's all his. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, including us, and we belong to him. His hands form the dry land. We gaze on, the, on this world, all its beauty, it should prompt us to praise. Over COVID, kind of COVID season, tons of people are going to these national parks and they're taking pictures of these, the beauty. Why do they take pictures? Because it's astonishing, this beauty. And the pictures don't really capture actually being there even. And, and all of it, he's flung and painted with his hands, as it were. It's all his, it's all because of him. He's the one who created beauty itself. And yet, as David said a few weeks ago, how sad would it be to see all this beauty and have the sense that you should be thankful and yet not have anyone to be thankful for? Maybe that's you today. And we ourselves belong to him by virtue of being made by him. We owe him everything. He is great, it tells us, and he's worthy of all our praise. Now, some of you may be hearing this call to worship, and you might be like, man, that's a lot. And if you are, you have a good compadre, a good friend. He also struggled with this when he first became a believer, C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis first became a Christian, he said there was something about reading the Psalms that really uh, troubled him. You see, we despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. Thus, as I heard these Psalms, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. Somewhat like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new book to people who've never, he's never met or heard. You know this sort of people. What had escaped his, uh, Lewis's notion, though, was that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. So Lewis would hear God saying, come and praise me, and you think, man, how vain is that? How weird. God's not great enough to just, just be okay with his greatness without calling us into his praise. Why is he calling us into this praise? And he reflects, the world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players, praise, players praising their favorite games. We not only spontaneously praise what we value, but we instinctively urge others to join in our praise, rhetorically asking, isn't she lovely? Wasn't that concert glorious? Don't you think that scenery is magnificent? Praise is more than just express enjoyment. It actually completes the enjoyment as its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers 
keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's been expressed. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is actually inviting us to enjoy Him. You hear that? That's really what God's trying to do. He's not saying, I want you to worship me because that's what you're supposed to do. Now, he tells us things like that. That's not really at the heart of what's driving that command. What's driving the command? He wants you to enjoy the, the most exhilarating thing in the face of the earth. And you and I are so distracted, even as David Foster Wallace talked about. We're distracted by a thousand things. Video games. Shopping. Football games. It's not that many of these things are, are bad in themselves. It's just that the little distractions, and they draw us away from feasting on the thing that's most important. And so God is here commanding us to glorify Him, and in doing so, He's inviting us to enjoy Him. He continues that the duty actually exists for the delight. See, God's whole purpose in inviting you to worship Him, demanding you worship Him even, is urging you to enjoy Him. Which brings us to the second invitation. Verse 6. He continues, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Why should we praise Him like this? Again, he asks, the psalmist answers. The second reason is not just creation, but redemption or covenant. Verse 7. For He is our God, our God, and we are His people, of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. This is a crazy thing. God claims us to be his own and allows us to claim him as our own. He's the king of the world. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need us. And yet he offers himself to us to adopt us as his own sons and daughters and allows us to adopt him as our father, as our shepherd. We're the people that he, he focuses on caring for. The people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. He's our shepherd. We're his people. This should move us to erupt in praise. It's not just that there's this God who's great, and he is, but this God who is great has also made us his own. And it should be the thing that exhilarates our hearts the very thing that these love songs, your inspiration kind of songs are about, that we're longing for, actually God's behind it. He's the hunger and thirst that we're really thirsting for. Which is why it's so critical to hear this call to invitation to worship. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit weird. I'm going to uh, actually borrow from someone else's sermon. <clears throat> some of you heard this before, but some of you haven't. Who is this that we worship? Um, there's a pastor named S.M. Lockridge. He's, he's now gone, but he preached a sermon called My King, and he said this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally sufficient. 
He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of the world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. Has the highest personality in philosophy. The fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him today. You see, he's the king to knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changing. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But you see, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they find out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king. That's our king. That's the one that we worship. If that doesn't light your fire, you may have to ask, is your your wood wet? As one of my friends would say. The Bible describes the God who's inviting us to worship him in such terms that we'd be absolutely foolish, utter fools, the most foolish people in the whole world, if we didn't respond to his invitation to come and enjoy him and to worship him. My greatest regret, honestly, for my life is that I don't enjoy him more deeply and more fervently, more fully, more persistently. That, that I often let other songs capture my heart more than his song. And I fear that you and I are alike in that. And in that, God gives us a confrontation in this call to worship. This is kind of weird, verses 7 through 11. He confronts us. He says, today if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. Now what's he referring to here? It's really fascinating if you go back to the reference. He's referring to what happened in Exodus 16 and 17. But what happened, some of you are familiar with this, what happens in Exodus, some of you not, but like the whole book of Exodus is pretty crazy, right? God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, the most powerful one in the world, but it'll be to you. 
And you're going to tell him to let my people go because they've been enslaved for years, 400 years. And Moses is like, oh my goodness, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, I'm not powerful. I don't know how to just talk. He's like, you're going. And so he goes, and you know what happened? Crazy plagues. Started out relatively minor things. Flies, snakes, blood in the water, which is crazy. But then animals start dying. Then the firstborn son, child of the whole country, every one of them dies, except for the Israelites. And then Pharaoh gets so mad at, Pharaoh, at, at, at Moses. He's like, go, I don't, get out of here. You're, ruin, you're ruining my country. And so he takes off with all the people, and it had to be a glorious sight, right? All these people, like, trying to hightail it out with all their stuff, not exactly knowing where to go. And then Pharaoh rethinks his decision. Man, that was a terrible idea. And so what does he do? He gets his chariots and his, and his army, and he chases after them. Remember, they don't have real weapons. And they hear him coming. And they're, they're, right the, <laughs> they're right at the river, as it were, the, dead, the Red Sea. And, and they, they're like, we can't cross or we're trapped. And so God splits the Red Sea so they walk through in, as on dry land. And then the, the army of Pharaoh starts chasing after them even through the sea. And they get to the other side and the, the sea returns and wipes out his army. And it would have been deathly silent, literally. And then they erupted in praise in Exodus 15. But no sooner than they do that, then Exodus 16 and 17 come, where they, they're hungry and they're like, why did you bring us out into the wilderness to make us die, Moses? And then they get thirsty and, and they're like, we're going to die of thirst and it's all because you don't care about us. God's not present with us. What? What? You just saw God do crazy things and you've forgotten already, like days later, not even like hardly a week later, you've forgotten already. Most of us are like, if you could just put me back in biblical times, if I just saw God move like, like directly, like crazy, like Jesus kind of stuff, I, I, would, I would never forget that. And you and I can tell ourselves that all, all day after day, but like, the Israelites forgot it, and the, the people of Jesus' day forgot it. Even Peter forgot it. And so that's why he offers this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, no harm in your hearts, like in that day. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, how often do we do the same thing? For 40 years, I loathed that generation. Whoa. And said there were people who go astray in their hearts and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What happened here? They saw God's work and they forgot. They quit reminding each other of the crazy, beautiful, wonderful things that God had done, who he is. And they became captured with their self-centered ways like we frequently do. And it says because they forgot his ways, because they've not known his ways, God loathed that generation and said they will not enter in my rest. And he's offering that as a warning to us. It goes into greater details in the passage we read in Hebrews 3 and 4. 
Again, St. Augustine reflects on this in a pretty helpful way. He says, by God himself, he confirms his promises. By himself, he confirms his threats. Let no one say in his heart, his promise is true, his threat is false. As his promise is true, so is his threat sure. You ought to be equally assured of rest, happiness, eternity, and immortality if you live in light of his commandments, as of destruction of burning eternal fire, of damnation of the devil if you despise his commandments. What's Augustine saying? A lot of us are like Thomas Jefferson. We, we, we like the, the nice things. If it's a promise in the Bible, we're like, that's my promise. But then when it comes to the, the warnings and even the curses, we're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I worship that God. And here's the thing is the God that you have to deal with is the one who gives both. So we need to hear his promises as well as his threats. Why do we need to hear his threats? The threats are not given because he hates us. I don't tell my kid don't run in the street because I, don't, I hate my kid. I don't, I'm not telling neighbor kids that in general. I'm telling my kids that why? Because I love them. I don't want to see them get run over. And God's telling us this because he wants to warn us that if you don't worship me, you're going to worship something. And that something's going to eat your lunch. So come and worship me. In some ways, he's warning us and saying, what's wrong with you? A few months ago, actually two months ago, I was driving in my car. I was thinking about this song because I had to preach twice this summer. So I was, I was driving in Birmingham and 280, if you've ever been there, is a little bit like... Uh, you're a driver airline, except you're driving 50, 60 miles an hour. It's four lanes and it's packed and they're all like bumper to bumper. Like I pulled onto it and, and there's a stoplight pretty early on and, and there were hundreds of cars all lined up. And this guy comes and starts leaning on his horn. And then he starts, rolls down his window and starts screaming. And I'm like... I thought he might be screaming at me at first. I think he was screaming at the guy with the organ tag or something. But, but he was just screaming top of his lungs and, and just acting like an idiot. And I wanted to roll down my window and say, what's wrong with you? And then I thought, man, if I did that, there would be something wrong with me because I'd be inviting myself to get beaten up. But at, at, at the same time, I was thinking about this psalm and how in many ways... God's doing that with us, like, whoa, what it, whoa, time out, what's going on with you? What's wrong with you? Don't, don't be an idiot. Don't lose your life. He wants us to hear him and respond to him, not for his sake, but for our sake. So the question we have to ask is, what does it look like to hear his voice today and then harden your hearts? And so just by way of introducing this to you, I want you to reflect on this later. It looks like going through the motions without engaging your whole being in responding to the Lord. What is worship? Other than something that entails our entire being assigning ultimate value. What are you assigning ultimate value to? What does it look like to harden your hearts? It looks like hearing about God and His greatness and having Him personally invite us into His worship, thus into enjoying Himself. And then going and living a life that's all about living for us. It's like showing up for worship and then 
hardly thinking about engaging with God the rest of the week. If that's you, where you are, and truth be told, it's to one degree or another, it's where nearly all of us are, then the question is, how are you going to change? Well, if you've screwed up, God, the good news is that this is a call to worship. It's a re-invitation to come to me. And so it brings us to the transformation of worship. This will be quick. Um, again, I'm wrestling with this question, what's wrong with you? And I read something by a pastor, and he said, whenever you're tempted to ask what's wrong with you, it's a good, good idea to, to ask first what happened to you. And that's an interesting question because in some ways, God's considering these two questions as well. What's wrong with you is something that's wrong with every single one of us. As David Foster Wallace described, we're all screwed up. We're all worshipers. And far too often, even as Christians, we're worshiping things that aren't God. But what happened to you is also revealing, right? I'm not going to pack it all. It's the whole Bible, right? But Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 Adam and Eve sinned. Since then, we've all been jacked up. We've all been uh, twisted, perverse, and guilty. And so we all, not only are guilty, but we're all screwed up. And so we have a tendency to turn in on ourselves. And so what did God do to, to fix us, to, to dress us? Well, with the Israelites, who did he send? He sent Moses. And Moses was an awesome leader, even though he's fallible. And Moses led them out of Israel, but we have someone greater than Moses, like infinitely greater. We have Jesus. And why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came to re-invite us into worship, literally came to like introduce us to who God is and to say, hey, don't be an idiot. Come find life in me. We talk about that every, every week at the Lord's table in John 6, from John 6. But Jesus did more than just invite us into worship. He actually lived the perfect life that we're supposed to live but don't. And he did that all for the Father's sake in order to rescue us. And in the life, he lived such a perfect life that Pharisees hated him. And so they got Pontius Pilate in Rome to kill him on the cross. And yet the scriptures tell us that, that when that happened, it was fitting into the plan of the Father to rescue us. For Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, but he died the death we deserved to die on the cross. Also, the scriptures tell us we could be adopted into his family. So we could be forgiven of our sins. So we could receive his spirit and be made new. So that one day, as Lewis says in another place, when you see me, when we see each other, we're going to be tempted to worship each other because we're going to be so beautiful and virtuous. The day has not arrived yet. But it's all because of Jesus coming to rescue us. And if nothing else, we should be so captured by the mercies of Jesus that we spend every moment of every day reflecting on that and wanting to give him praise in order to enjoy him. He came in order to, to invite us into worship. Not just Sunday morning, but all of life. And yet Sunday morning, the second point is that Sunday morning is really important. Why is regular worship important? 
Because we forget. That's really what the last half of the psalm is about. Don't harden your hearts. It's what Hebrews 3 and 4, and really in some ways the whole book is about. We have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to be captured with what's going on in our world, in our lives, and to forget God's there. And that's why it's so important that we come into God's, among God's people and hear God's word and sing his praises. Worship is partly about expression, okay? It's partly about being so fired up about God, I can't wait to praise him. But even more than that, it's about formation. It's about shaping us to be worshipers. It's about reminding us of who we are, who we should be, who we are and who we should be, that we might begin to embody that more and more as we live, which is the importance of regular worship and the importance of having friends who call you into worship, having friends who call you out. So what transforms worship? We have someone greater than Moses, Jesus. What transforms worship is showing up and God shows up in the middle of worship to make these things real to us. And then finally, God's trying to move us from duty to delight. As C.S. Lewis says, the whole purpose of duty is to move us into delight. There's a song, song by William Cooper, Love Constraining to Obedience, and it goes like this. There's, this is a few lines from it. I began to realize that all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. I was trying to be really good in order to be righteous, in order to offer God something. And yet it was empty. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. What shall I do was the word then, that I may grow worth, worthier grow. Sorry, I'm totally botching the poetry of this. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. In other words, before he was thinking about what can he do in order that he might be acceptable, but then he realized the only way I'm possibly going to be acceptable is through Jesus. And so now, what can I offer to him in response to his good gift to me? Not earning his favor, but responding to his favor. And then he, he has these amazing lines. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into, to a child and duty into choice. The whole reason God's calling you into worship is inviting you to enjoy him because he wants you to know how deeply loved you are, how beautiful and glorious that you might be lost in wonder, love, and praise, that you might truly worship and enjoy him. As I said, in about a month, you're going to be able to see worship pretty clearly. Okay, uh, for all of uh, LSU's flaws, and they have a lot of flaws down there, they do worship really well. About eight years ago, I went to my first game in Tiger Stadium. And I'm an Ole Miss fan. I was going to see an Ole Miss game, and I was a little bit nervous because I thought I'd get beaten up. So I cheered for the Rebels quietly. They ended up losing, which is probably good for my well-being. But when I was there, I saw worship happening. And yes, it was idolatrous, and there's something sad about that. But what were they doing? They were getting into the game. They were fully investing in who was winning. And when, when LSU won, they started singing songs. Why do they do that? Because LSU forces their students to do that. 
They, they do it by, by, they pull knives out and say, if you don't cheer for the team, we're going to kill you. No, that's not how it works. They're like, there's this glorious thing going on in Tiger Stadium. If you don't want to go, please don't go. Leave room for other people. There'll be plenty of people there. And yet, what we have, what, we have something to learn from that, right? God is calling us into a worship that's much grander than anything that happens in Tiger Stadium. And he's calling us to be so captured with him that we make that believable to the world outside by how we live and by what we praise, what we enjoy openly. And the question is, is what are you going to, what are you reflecting? You and I tend to reflect that badly. We tend to forget he's inviting you anew. Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us worship the God of our salvation. Let me pray. For God, I thank you for your word. It truly is the thing that offers us life. And you know that we forget, God. We're really forgetful. I'm maybe the most forgetful. We uh, dig out empty cisterns for ourselves that can hold no water and forsake you, the fountain of living water. But I thank you that you have sent Jesus to forgive us and invite us anew in an ultimate sense, but that you've given us the song, your word, to invite us again to enjoy you, to praise you, to be lost in you and your greatness and goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.